A British Airways flight from China to the United Kingdom crashed short of the runway. What caused this flight to come just short of making it to its destination? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Welcome, Dave. Our newest patron. Hello. Welcome to the madness that is our Patreon. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so not that much madness. A little bit. Oh, it's cool. But just listen to the post episodes. You'll figure it out. I think we definitely go professional and overboard with our everything. A little bit. But that's okay. Sometimes. I like it. So this week we're doing your listener stories. If you are listening to this the day it comes out, please send in your story. Thank ASAP. you. We ASAP. have not gotten any, I don't think, for this month. Oh, crap. By the time this records, hopefully, we will have some. Yes. But if you have a celebration or a fireworks story you want to tell us, please. Or if you just have an aviation story you want to tell us, make sure you submit it either on the website or via email. Do not send us a website link. <laughs> okay, send us the actual story. You can copy-paste it. We don't care, but... Send it to us in some way we can read it, not have us look it up. Thank you. Thanks. This has been your public service announcement. Also, you should go listen to the most recent one, if you haven't already, because our uh, very common Dave and a new Dave started having conversations via story. It was pretty great. It was pretty great. <laughs> it was pretty great. All right. I think that's it for housekeeping. Check out the merch site. Or the merch tab on our website. And then the Patreon and all that jazz. And what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering British Airways Flight 38. Thank you to a lot of people. Thank you to Craig, Helen, and Will all for recommending this incident. This one's relatively well known, mostly because this was a 777. And there are not many 777 accidents to talk about in history. Which is good and bad. So this occurred on January the 17th of 2008, so also obviously relatively recent. Like I said, this was a 777. This was a 200ER with the tail number Golf-Yankee Mike, Mike, Mike. Mike, Mike, Mike. Mike, Mike, Mike. <laughs> Mike, 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 Mike. What does ER stand for, dear? ER stands for Extended Range. So it has extra fuel carrying it capacity. It can go farther. Yeah, it can go a lot further. And then there's an even further, even longer range version of this airplane called the LR, the long range. Oh, ho, ho. And that one has even more fuel tanks and some wingtip conversions to allow it to travel extra far. But wow. This is the in-between version, in-between the 200 the and the 200 LR. In-between. In-between. This is the most common version that travels around the world. They can travel very long distances regardless. So, as a matter of fact, this was a flight from Beijing to London. The captain for today's flight is Peter Burkle. He was 43 years old. He had 12,700 hours total, of which 8,450 of those were on the type. That's so, a pretty good chunk. Yeah, so literally two-thirds of his hours were on the 777. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, he, he got in the 777 and stayed there. <laughs> pretty similar with our first officer, who was John Coward. He was 41 years old. He had 9,000 hours total, of which 7,000 hours were on the type, on the 777. Wow. So, yeah, again. He got in the 777 <laughs> and stayed there. Hey, it's a good airplane. Everybody that gets in there just wants to be there. We know a 777 captain. We do. I met him at Centennial once. Yes. And then there was a second first officer on board, the crew's first officer. His name was Connor... Magenus? Magenus? He was 35 years old. He had 5,000 hours total, of which 1,120 were on the 777. Gotcha. The flight plan for this flight called for a climb to 34,000 feet, followed by a descent down to 31,500 feet for predicted extreme cold at the POLHO waypoint on the border between China and Mongolia. And the airplane would just kind of be there the rest of the way. Freaking cold. That's like Siberia territory. Yeah, we're talking over Siberia, and this is in January, so cold. Really cold. Even during the day, because this is an entirely during the day flight. The crew checked the flight plan and weather and agreed that 79,000 kilograms of fuel would be sufficient for the flight. The flight took off at 10.09 a.m. local time. 
While climbing, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to climb to flight level 348, or 34,800 feet. The only reason that I say that, and because that is a kind of a strange number rather it than is. a round thing, is because they put it in meters, and this is also like the conversion they put into the report. So I'm not even sure if they actually went to 34,800 feet or if they went to 35. <laughs> gotcha. Or 34. Because in theory, going westbound, they should be at an even. So don't know. They put them at 34,800 feet because they put them at a round meter number. Gotcha. That's weird, but okay. Yeah. Anyways, the crew accepted this altitude and complied. While the flight was about 350 nautical miles north of Moscow, they climbed again to flight level 380, 38,000 feet. So now they're much higher than their intended flight plan. Yeah, why did they go... I'm sure that we'll get into this later. I don't. It's okay. This doesn't. This Is isn't there... really super pertinent. They do make one more climb. As the flight was cruising over Sweden, they climbed again to flight level 400, or 40,000 feet. Why? The airplane's capable of it, and it saves on fuel. I know, but they were supposed to be at 31,000? Yeah, over Siberia, yes. They oh. stayed They stayed at about 34,000, that 34,800 foot number over all of Siberia, basically. The flight then began its approach into London with the captain as the pilot flying and the first officer as the pilot monitoring. We'll talk about why I say that in a minute. The aircraft descended down to 11,000 feet and then held at Lambourne for about five minutes. It then descended down to 9,000 feet during that hold. The flight was then radar vectored by the air traffic controller to the ILS approach for runway 27 left at London Heathrow. The flight stabilized on the ILS approach, or the instrument landing system approach, with the autopilot. As the flight reached 1,000 feet above ground level, 83 seconds before touchdown, the airplane was fully configured for landing, with landing gear down and flaps set to 30 degrees, and they were still flying on the autopilot. At 800 feet above ground level, the first officer became the pilot flying for their agreed procedures. So they actually switch roles here. Which is weird to me. Yes, especially weird. at a critical point. It, if it was like he wanted to get more hours landing, I could understand that. But that's still a little weird to have two separate pilots flying unless it's an emergency. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> The first officer was to make a manual landing, hand-flying the airplane, disconnecting the autopilot at 600 feet above ground level. Immediately after the first officer became the, the pilot flying, the autothrottle began commanding an increase in thrust from both engines. This is relatively normal on an approach, because it's once you have the flaps out, landing gear down, you have a lot of drag. So the airplane's trying to maintain thrust and maintain speed. Both engines began increasing thrust, but then at 720 feet, 57 seconds before touchdown, the right engine began to reduce thrust uncommanded. Seven seconds later, the left engine did the same thing. 48 seconds before touchdown, the first officer noted that the engine thrusts were beginning to split, so they were different. He noticed not when the first engine pulled back by itself... You also have to remember there's that human factor. Yes, they're of... they're watching many things because they're in a final approach. Also, it's kind of normal for the auto throttle to split a little bit. And especially on final, when they're trying to maintain a very specific speed, the engines will increase, decrease, increase, decrease, and they're probably watching a lot of instruments and out the window right now a lot. I believe the first officer even said that at the time that this was happening, he was scanning... Because they can see the airport. It's right in front of them. They're really close at this point. They were trying to. He was trying to see if their gate was empty. Make sure they had a place to park when they got there. Because they were ahead of schedule. 500 feet above the ground, the airplane had a standard radio altimeter call. So 500. 500. Yeah. And the air traffic controller cleared them to land, which the crew acknowledged. So everything's going pretty normally. This is pretty close to the runway at this point. 34 seconds before touchdown and 430 feet above the ground, the captain announced that the approach was stable, and the first officer said, just, meaning that he noticed that the airplane was... Kind of acting a little something's weird. Something's off. Yeah. Seven seconds later, the first officer noticed that the airspeed was reducing below their expected approach speed, so they've now reached their final approach speed, and it's gone below. That's not good. Please tell me that they disengaged the autothrottle. The crew began trying to manually adjust thrust, 
but nothing changed with the thrust of the engines. Huh. As a matter of fact, the whole time, the throttle levelers were forward. The auto throttle was commanding full thrust. And they were losing engine power. They were losing yes. engine power. They tried to diagnose the problem quickly. The airspeed continued to reduce the whole time. The autopilot continued to try to maintain the instrument landing system glide slope, bringing the nose up higher and higher in order to maintain this. The airplane reached 115 knots, and an airspeed low warning began sounding. The airspeed briefly stabilized, at which time the captain took over flying the airplane. He retracted the flaps to flaps 25 degrees. He was at flaps 30. He was at flaps 30, so he reduced by one notch, basically, 5 degrees. The captain then flipped an engine ignition switch. As the flight reached 200 feet above the ground, it slowed to 108 knots. Slow. Very, very, very slow. Ten seconds before touchdown, the stick shaker activated, at which time the first officer pushed the control column forward, per training. As you should. Yep. So this worked. At this time, the autopilot was finally disconnected. Do you remember what I said earlier? It was supposed to have been disconnected at 600 feet. Yeah. It wasn't. So That's a problem. So him pushing forward on the stick actually made the autopilot disconnect. Well, and that, that'll happen. It's supposed to do that. But he should have disconnected the autopilot. Unless the auto throttle thing happened before that, and then they were distracted. Exactly yes. what happened. I could happened. understand, yeah. I That's could understand why they just, it just... That is exactly what happened. Yeah. Good job. Yep. <laughs> My reasoning deductive skills. There you go. You just figured out the human factor by being human. <laughs> the nose dropped slightly, as he commanded. The captain then attempted to start the APU. Immediately after that, he realized that a crash was imminent. He began transmitting Mayday, Mayday, to the air traffic controller. Just before impact, the first officer pulled back on the control column, bringing the nose up. The aircraft struck the ground in the open grass field about 1,000 feet short of the threshold for 2-7 left, but inside the airport perimeter fence, thankfully missing all the buildings surrounding it. Oh, thank and the neighborhood the, uh, and, and everything. And the antenna and everything. It was, yep. they went right over a highway. All these things. They missed it all. They, I'm kind of surprised he decided to dip when the stick shaker... I mean, they needed to gain a little bit of speed, and I think they were hoping to get just enough to make it to the runway. They didn't. The nose gear collapsed, and both main landing gear folded back, with the right main separating from the airplane. It ripped off the airplane. Ripped off the airplane, which it's actually designed to do. The left one, however, didn't do this. It punctured the wing, followed by the fuselage. And the cabin. Puncturing the passenger cabin, breaking a passenger's leg. Ooh. Yeah. The airplane came to a sliding stop on the belly on the pavement, just past the beginning of the runway. The captain attempted to make an evacuation call over the PA system to the cabin, but mistakenly called air traffic control instead. Oops. The air traffic controller then informed the captain that the call was made to the wrong call, the wrong radio, yeah. basically. I don't talk about this later, but investigators determined that had no effect on no, the evacuation. Because the captain then immediately made an evacuation call over the PA system, and evacuation began promptly. It was fine. The evacuation actually was carried out very effectively and normally. All of the slides worked for once. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody evacuated normally. One passenger had severe injuries due to a broken leg. 46 others on board were injured. 104 others were not injured at all. So everybody, everybody lived. Everybody lived. Which the crew actually didn't. They weren't sure when they came to that very abrupt, hard landing. <laughs> that uh, hard landing, that very abrupt stop and sliding along the ground and things flying everywhere. They thought for sure that they had probably killed 20% of their passengers. Well, that's why you keep your seatbelt on. Fortunately, they were on descent, right? So everyone should have had their seatbelt on. Well, and, and I'm sure there's other things that play into that. But. Well, a few other things. I mean, landing gear was down. And so that took the brunt of the impact. And the airplane is designed very well, of course. And on top of that, they were moving very slow. Yep. Oh, that's for this, true. For this impact. So, slower than they maybe should have been. Yeah, slower than they should have been. But because of all these things, actually, the fuselage remained completely intact. Apart from, obviously, the puncture where the wheel went through. But... You mean it didn't fracture into three pieces no. like it normally does? No, it didn't. <laughs> no, it definitely didn't. 
Not like last week's. That was going to be uh, my next yeah. question. There, there were some uh, throwbacks to last week. Like, oh, let's just fly over a highway real quick. Yeah. Also a British flight. Not the yep. same airline, but... Nope. Well... Much like last week, this investigation was performed by the Air Accident Investigation Branch, or the AAIB. And luckily, they had a lot to work with. They had passengers to interview, crew to interview, and the entire plane. That was pretty lucky. This does include the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder both found in the tail, as well as the quick access recorder, or QAR, found in the nose of the plane. This is a recorder that's usually used for diagnostics, for mechanics and such, but it does record further back than the black boxes. That's it, probably a good thing, though. It records yes. a lot of stuff, too. Between, re- I think it said 4,100 different bits of data. Something like Oof, that. That's a lot of data. I that's a lot to go through. I didn't go a whole lot into it. The Mayday episode, I'm saying Mayday because it's not air disasters. They did this whole thing of, well, maybe it was an electrical problem because there was like a 45-second delay on the quick access record. It was missing 45 seconds. It has a built-in buffering delay of 45 seconds. Turns out it was designed that way. I'm not going into that because it was like a built-in dramatic effect thing in the episode. I'm like, this is dumb. You guys knew it had 45-second delay. That has nothing to do with it. I'm sure that took them half the time to realize as it took them to explain in the episode. It was fine. Okay. The investigators interviewed the crew who said that power rolled back on both engines at almost the same time and they were too low to really do anything about it. Well, based on some of our last episodes, let's go through some possibilities. Was yeah. there a bird strike? I was going to say, bird strike? <laughs> no, no. No. There's there's nothing in the engine. That one's pretty easy to diagnose, as it turns out. I was like, like, is there blood? Is there, is there bird? <laughs> are there birds in the engines? No. Did they fly through volcanic ash that caused all, <laughs> <laughs> all the engines to fail? <laughs> Much like another British Airways flight. British Airways Flight 9. Uh, no. The answer is no. <laughs> no. The answer that, that would Not happen that. again, especially that that recent in history. No. No. Was the fuel exhausted like the Gimli glider? Well, passengers on board reported smelling fuel before they were even evacuated, and the wreckage made it pretty evident that there was a still f- fuel Abundance in the tank. Abundance of fuel? Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of fuel on board. So wasn't that... Were there contaminants in the fuel? There is a mini-sode that we have out for our patrons. Yes. Discussing that. Yeah. Investigators took the fuel and analyzed for everything that had ever been found in fuel before and didn't find anything out of the ordinary in the Jet A1 fuel. Now, with that being said, I do want to say that there was water in the fuel. This is normal. There will always be water in fuel. It's unavoidable. This particular fuel had 35 to 40 parts per million of water, which is similar to other aircraft that flew this route with no problems. In short... Nothing weird with the fuel. Yes. When you're flying GA airplanes, you absolutely want zero water to show up. But we sump our tanks for that reason. And in GA, it's a little bit different. It's because we're running on piston engines, which can starve very quickly off of a very small amount of water. And you guys don't use Jet A1, do you? Nope. It's low lead. 100 low lead. It's different fuel. Different fuel. Different fuel, different engines, different combustion system. All these things. So... Jet A1 will have water. That's just how it is. And it's in parts per million. Like, we're talking fractions thankfully, of a percent. Thankfully, they design things for this. It's fine. Okay, so, maybe it wasn't anything physical at all. Maybe it was something with the computer and or electrical system. Unfortunately, none of the recorders showed any of that either. Great. At this point, investigators were kind of at a loss, but based on the data from these recorders, investigators were able to analyze the actions of the crew in this circumstance. The right engine stopped responding to the autothrottle 57 seconds before impact, and the crew immediately became aware of the problem with engine thrust. They had no training on what to do for engine power loss with this little altitude, similar to U.S. Airways Flight 1549, which happened just a year later, almost to the day. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So. And they had even less altitude to work with than Sully did. Yes, they did. And that's kind of the bigger problem is in an incident like US 1549, they had a little bit of buffer they could have dealt with. In an accident like this, I'm not sure with human factor and everything, they would have ever had a procedure they could run for this. Now, they did do one thing that I noticed that was similar. Tried to start the APU. Tried to start the APU. I heard that. I was like, hey. I got that. So, 
All they could have done is exactly what they did. As the autopilot struggled to maintain the ILS glide path, it raised the nose in an attempt to climb, but this led to a loss of airspeed, and therefore the stick shaker went off. The first officer pushed the nose down accordingly, even though they were low. Now, the captain did something that wasn't written down anywhere. You know, kind of like Sully did. And that was to retract the flaps from 30 to 25 degrees. It's to reduce drag, right? Correct. Yes. Investigators determined that this was absolutely crucial to the survival of everyone on the plane. It allowed the plane to clear the ILS aerial array. If they had stayed at flaps 30, they would have crashed into the ILS antenna, and more substantial damage would have occurred. And potentially more injuries and deaths. So just that one little push of a detent saved everyone. I mean, good for him. It's why a lot of pilots have to take, like, an... Uh, college, they have to go to college first to understand aerodynamics and stuff. That and critical thinking. Yeah, it's just like, we should do this because of the way everything works. Yes. Because they had so little time, they had to focus and prioritize, which is spelled P-R-I-O-R, and they did not have time to make a brace call to the cabin. Though investigators determined that given the little time, this would not have changed anything. Even if they had said, hey, brace, everyone would have been like, what? And then, bam. So, I mean, you might have noticed that he didn't say brace. It didn't really matter. Everyone lived anyway. Yeah, well, they were too low. The impact was heavy, but it wasn't unsurvivable, obviously. Correct. The flight crew did receive awards from the airline. I don't... Uh-huh. recall exactly what they were but they were like the highest level medals that they could have gotten from the airline since you know they saved everyone yeah so good yeah. job to them it was not their fault they did everything that they should have and beyond so yeah and i mean this was yeah Ta-da. good job i applaud you thank you for being critical thinkers yeah good crew resource management yes it doesn't happen very often on this podcast. We have to celebrate it every time it happens. <laughs> now, with that being said, what went wrong? There was one more detail from the flight data recorder that was crucial to this investigation. The fuel meter valves that feed fuel to the engines were completely open, but not enough fuel was reaching the engines. What? To put this in numbers, with that valve fully open, the fuel flow should have been 38,000 pounds per hour, but the left engine was only getting 5,000, and the right engine was getting 6,000. Which is next to nothing in comparison. So the engines were starving, is what you're telling me. Yeah! Basically. This was keeping them at just above flight idle. So they were still producing a small amount of thrust, but next to nothing, basically. So why did it happen? Uh, Let me get into it. This condition of low fuel was actually confirmed by cavitation marks on the high-pressure pumps of both engines. These marks are bright-colored and are a slight erosion of the dry-film lubricant on the bearings and the outlet ports. The pump manufacturer said that these are very unusual and ran several tests and found that these marks occur with low inlet pressure for several minutes. In other words, fuel flow was definitely low. What would cause this? Well... Was there a blockage somewhere, maybe? Perhaps. Perhaps. You may say. Investigators took a look in the fuel tanks and found five loose articles called foreign object debris, which is Nick's entire job at work to avoid. It is, and it just blows my mind that they got away with this. They're like, excuse me? There's stuff just floating around in the tanks? In each of the fuel tanks. Let me get into it. One was a red plastic scraper that had been in the aircraft since it was constructed... But it was trapped beneath the right tank suction inlet and would not have compromised the flow of fuel. In the left tank, there were two pieces of plastic tape and their brown paper backing. It was a 3M model tape. For it was in the water scavenge system, and there was nothing to indicate that it would have blocked fuel flow. Lastly, there was a small piece of either fabric or paper in the center tank, but it also would not have affected fuel flow. Well, there goes that theory. So all the items were basically too small or just unable to block fuel flow. But also, can y'all not leave stuff in the fuel tank? Yeah, can we, can we just not do that, like, at all? Talking about a large airplane and a lot of, you know, very large production airplane with a lot of people on board. Can we just, like, have good quality management and just not do that? Please yeah, and please. thank you. Thanks. Now, there is a phenomenon we haven't spoken of before regarding fuel that could be relevant here. 
When fuel temperatures are very low, there is a potential for wax to form in the fuel as it freezes because of its chemical components. I did not go into this. I did not major in any form of chemistry. No, thank you. This is relevant because the flight flew over some very cold parts of Siberia. And by cold, I mean the plane recorded outside temperatures of negative 74 degrees Celsius or negative 101 degrees Fahrenheit. That's cold. That's more than a little bit of cold. That's like, you'd be dead cold. That's brutal cold. Awful. Now, according to tests done on this particular fuel, as in directly from the fuel tanks, this would happen at negative 57 degrees Celsius, but the fuel temperature probe on board never recorded a temperature that low. The coldest it got was negative 34 degrees centigrade. It was actually more like negative 20 degrees when they were approaching London. There is no way that fuel wax would have been a problem. So what's the problem then? Oh, everyone's asking that at this point. This was a super frustrating investigation for them because of how... They'd have like an avenue, they'd follow that avenue, they're like, that wasn't it. How many rabbit holes have we already addressed? Yeah, I mean, and then follow another avenue, that wasn't it. All these things are very like tangible, It easily... could totally be this. Yes, all these things but make it's sense. Not. <laughs> but they keep not finding that problem. So investigators were able to narrow their search because the boost pumps that supply fuel from the main tanks to the engine did not indicate low pressure, meaning that the restriction, wherever it was, was downstream of those low pressure indicators, but upstream of the high pressure pumps that had the cavitation marks that I spoke of earlier. I am now going to show these lovely bunch of people some maps of the fuel system. You can find them on our website. They are not very self-explanatory, but uh, they're there. So yeah. uh, so here's the confusing fuel system. So these are the fuel pumps that said that fuel pressure was normal. So it had to happen after those. Okay. But this was the thing that had those light marks, so it had to be before that. And so after these pumps, it goes into the engine. This is the engine. So then there's these bits before that. So it's somewhere in there. You've eliminated quite a bit of shit. Yes. Okay. I know that wasn't super useful, but I like visuals. If you look at the visual on the website, the first diagram, figure six, nothing in there because they proved that there wasn't in there. Figure seven, the little boxy thing with two circles, that's the thing with the marks. So that's it had the high-pressure pump. Yeah, so it had to happen before then, but after all the other stuff, before it goes into the engine. Well, what could that possibly be? Investigators had a hunch, but this hunch seemed almost impossible to prove one way or the other. What would have been present during the accident, but wouldn't have been present during examination? Do you have any guesses? I mean, no. Ice. Oh. But how the heck do you prove if there was ice there? You'd have to put it in a working engine. So, shall we move on? In fact, they had a lot of trouble testing this on their own, actually, the AAIB did. So they decided to take parts of the fuel system from this particular plane all the way to Seattle to Boeing, Boeing to test it. And we actually have a picture of their ginormous test set up on our website because it's not small. Oh, no, that's not small. No. And they were working on this for like 10 months. Yeah, it makes sense. So, why doesn't ice normally occur? Let's start there. Like I said before, flights take this route over Siberia all the time. Why doesn't their fuel have ice? It's because there is a mechanism in place that warms the fuel. It's called the Fuel Oil Heat Exchanger, or the FOHE. This is where I actually bring in my multiple degrees into this podcast. So, a heat exchanger is a mechanism that runs two fluids against each other. It cools a hot liquid and warms a cold liquid, using each other's temperatures to get closer to each other's temperatures. Right. There are usually two ways this is done, either running them next to each other with the fluid flowing in the same direction, called parallel flow, or in opposite directions, called counterflow. Any questions there? No. You can nope. see how the temperature changes accordingly. Yes. So in this circumstance, the cold fuel is flowing into the heat exchanger while hot oil is flowing in, heating the fuel and cooling the oil. And primarily, it eliminates any ice from the fuel. It's a hybrid design of what I was saying earlier about counterflow because the oil is pumped into a kind of tank 
that more than a thousand small fuel lines run through, and the oil is pumped out in the same, almost the same spot it's getting pumped in. Those small little fuel lines create a matrix that kind of looks like honeycomb when you see the inlet face of it. There are so freaking many of them. Yeah. At the inlet, those thousands of fuel tubes protrude ever so slightly above the, the oil tank, like four millimeters. You see that little... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. After the fuel is run out of the heat exchanger, it goes through a filter and runs to the high-pressure pump from earlier that I spoke of. Hmm. The big question here, is it possible for ice to form and block fuel flow into the heat exchanger so that it never gets the chance to melt the ice? Investigators simulated such a buildup at multiple points in the part of the fuel system they were examining to see what blockage would most closely produce the events of the accident flight. Investigators determined that the most likely course of events for this to happen would be substantial amounts of ice accumulating in the pipes, something to suddenly release them, and then the pileup of ice would accumulate on the face of those over a thousand fuel tubes on the inlet of the heat exchanger. So, investigators began testing on fuel at that low temperature the plane recorded in the fuel of negative 34 degrees Celsius. But the ice was very crystalline and very structured and didn't adhere to itself or the pipes. So it would just pass through the heat exchanger and melt. No problem. Well, crap. Yeah. This whole process was taking months and months, and then investigators had a breakthrough. Well, finally. They tried a range of temperatures between water's freezing point, you know, zero degrees Celsius. Yeah, cold. If if you didn't know that, I I have lost a little bit of faith in you. So from zero degrees down to the negative 34 degrees Celsius, and they found that ice would form and become sticky, quote-unquote, or slushy, slushy, and stick to itself between the temperatures of negative 5 and negative 20 degrees Celsius. That's what they call their sticky zone, when it would actually adhere to itself and form clumps. Right. Around the same time in the analysis, Delta Flight 18 was on its way to Atlanta from Shanghai and experienced a similar uncommanded rollback of one engine, but this time it was at 38,000-some feet. So they had altitude to recover, Mm. and they did so successfully. The NTSB actually assigned one of the investigators from British Airways Flight 38 to help with that investigation. But this engine experienced the same actions as BA Flight 38 in its very similar rollback and all of the effects thereafter, and the fuel was in that prime sticky range that investigators had just discovered of negative 5 to negative 20 degrees Celsius. Interesting. So they're on the right track. But somehow, everything still seemed hopeless. They tried so many experiments, even in the right temperature range, to get ice to form and affect the fuel flow to reflect the accident conditions, but nothing seemed to work. They tried injecting water directly into the system so it would freeze. That didn't work. They tried making it freeze and form around the boost pump check valve where ice would form, but it didn't block it to the extent that the accident flight did. It still allowed through 28,000 pounds per hour, not five or 6,000. They tried seeing if ice would block the inlet of the boost pump, but there's a mesh screen it couldn't get through, and it melted. When the screen was removed, the ice was broken up by the pump. Then they tried these tests and those tests, etc., etc. But it never restricted fuel flow to less than what the engines needed, and it could be cleared by reducing fuel flow to idle. Every time they had a buildup, just pull back, and it would go away. But what if it didn't pull back? It would still eventually go away. Okay. So all of these tests thus far were inconsistent and hard to repeat, which is really bad, you know, for the scientific method that we all live off of. Yeah. Yep. And nothing was producing what happened with Flight 38. I am now electing to skip 10 pages of this report, which was all of the various things they've tried. It's a lot. Yeah. You can go read it yourself if you'd like. I really don't want to read it. They tried a lot of stuff and nothing worked. It's pretty dry. So investigators went back to the drawing board and looked at the specific circumstances around the accident flight. The fuel flow from most of the flight was pretty steady. You know, cruise flight. Makes sense. Pretty normal, yeah. And it wasn't until they were landing that they increased it for a little bit of turbulence that they had experienced upon landing, and that's when the engine started to have problems. Turns out, the Delta flight to Atlanta had also experienced turbulence at that altitude and had increased power for the first time in a couple hours. So, let's try experimenting with this. 
Investigators allowed ice to accumulate and cling to the fuel feed pipes before the heat exchanger for three hours and then increase the fuel flow rate suddenly. The ice that had accumulated on the pipes broke free and then gathered on the surface of the fuel oil heat exchanger inlet, blocking those thousand plus fuel tubes and restricting the fuel flow. And it looks something like that. Uh Uh-oh. Bad. It specifically took this avalanche or snowball of ice from the buildup in the fuel feed pipes to sufficiently block the fuel flow. Furthermore, the ice wouldn't melt despite being so close to that heat exchanger because the ends of those fuel tubes protruded those four millimeters before the actual heat exchanger. So they never got close enough to melt. They were so close. Which just blows my mind. But not close enough. That four millimeters makes a difference. That four millimeters makes that much difference. Skipping a little head into the future and into Nick's part, uh, once you get rid of that four millimeters, everything's fine. Yeah. They don't go super in-depth on that, but yes. If you just get rid of that little protrusion, it melts, and that's why this doesn't happen anymore. Yep. Fine. And that's all I've got. So, basically, what you're telling me is there was a buildup of ice. In the pipes. And once they increased the fuel flow, it mm-hmm. ripped all of ripped it off and went straight to the mesh plate. Yep. And all built up there and wouldn't melt. Yeah. Yep. And it restricted that fuel flow to what? A seventh of what it should be? Yeah. Less. So now, now here's the crazy thing, too, is that it did this in both engines. Yeah. That's yeah, how. That's a little weird. That's how consistent this can be, though. That's how that shows how the design. Really didn't plan for that. And yeah. this wasn't anyone's fault. No, no one no. knew this could happen. No. No one, like... It's kind of like cold well this... fatigue. Exactly. Yeah. No literally... one knew it was a thing until it was the thing. Literally, this thing was designed to make this exact thing not happen, and they couldn't have planned for that four millimeter little difference And it took to make all of that It took happen. months to find the exact circumstances that would cause that buildup. Because I bet you during certification, they're like, oh, let's see if this happens. Oh, it didn't happen? Great, send it through. Everything is fine. Yeah, I mean, 10 months of but testing for not. one little part. Mm. This is one circumstance where I think I can gracefully say I don't think it was anyone's fault. Nope. nope. The nope. crew did everything right. Boeing did everything right as far as they knew. Right. Rolls Royce did everything right as far as they knew. Again, it's kind of like cold dwell fatigue. Yeah. Like, no one knew it was a problem until it became a problem. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, okay, we need to fix that. Well, and they also found out that these exchangers are also only on the Rolls-Royce and only certain ones. So it wasn't even across all 777s across the world. This was just on a select set of 777s. And it just so happened that the Delta had the exact same engine configuration as As the British Airways flight. Yeah. So, yeah, that happened. If you really want to know more about heat exchangers, you can email us. I took an entire class on heat transfer. Thank you to Joseph Cullen for that wonderful class. I was going to say Chris Yakaki, but wrong professor. Nope. No, this is actually the professor that worked at Boeing. Okay, so we're going to take a break now, and we'll be back with you in just a sec. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, we're back. Hopefully now, there's not a uh, ridiculous amount of findings. Uh, so, uh... Funny story. <laughs> as this goes, so this was a 237-page report, which is sizable. Very, very sizable for an incident that didn't kill anybody. And didn't actually have... Like a massive catastrophic crash in reality. That so, being said. That being said, there was 115 findings. That's ridiculous. That's more than I've ever had, ever. AIB needs to calm down. Yeah, so I, I have picked out very few in hindsight of those to actually read. Um, you could see where I started getting really tired because <laughs> <laughs> def- I started highlighting less and less. There's definitely a lot that we did not cover on this crash. There's this feels unnecessary. There's like cabin factors we didn't go through, and 
I, I know it's probably a discredit to some of the report, but it's also for our sanity and your sanity so that this isn't like a bajillion hours. Well, and a lot of reports, too, it's a lot of they have to fact prove why certain things weren't the problem. So a lot of this report is proving why all the other things they tried were fine. We're fine. It wasn't the problem. So that's a lot of the findings, too. I know at one point I read somewhere that like a third of the cabin was covered in glass. I skipped right over that. Yeah, I'll read about that, actually. Just for funsies. Fun? Fun? It's not fun, but that's okay. They found that the aircraft had been loaded with 71,401 kilograms of Jet A1 jet fuel at Beijing, and the total fuel load at the start of the accident flight was 79,000 kilograms of fuel, which was sufficient fuel to complete the flight. So there was plenty of fuel on board for this flight. That was never a problem, even though they thought it could be. They found that during the flight from Beijing, the fuel temperature reached a minimum of 34 degrees Celsius below zero. As I said. Yep. And the minimum TAT, I don't remember what TAT is. Total air temperature. Reached was negative 45 degrees Celsius, which seems weird. So from what I understand, that's the temperature on the wing. Yeah, so probably friction versus outside yes. temperature. So outside temperature is SAT, or whatever that stood for in the report. And mm-hmm. that was the negative 70-some degrees Celsius, right. which nothing in the fuel tanks ever reached. Right. These temperatures experienced during the flight were unusual, but were within the operating envelope of the aircraft and were not unique. They found that data mining, so talking literally about data on the computers... Data mining showed that the accident flight was unique amongst 175,000 flights as having a low cruise fuel flow and a high fuel flow during approach while at a low fuel temperature. So that combination of three different things just didn't really ever happen on 175,000 flights. I think they said that they found... Of those 175,000, like 0.3% had the same conditions. Right, which is why this managed to happen and show up on this, because it can only happen during those 0.3% where that combination of three things happens. So, weird, complicated science. Super unlikely to ever happen, and that's why it took so long for this to actually happen. Yep, and then they managed to fix that 0.3% so it doesn't happen ever again. They found that both the left and right engine FMVs moved to full open, and the EECs entered LIC-17 with no effect on the fuel flow. So all this is a lot of really big mumbo-jumbo. Jargon. Yes, to say that basically everything opened full, like it should have been running full throttle, full bore. Yeah. And there was no fuel flow. No thrust. It didn't change the fuel flow. The engines just weren't doing anything. They found that the fuel temperature at the time of the engine rollback was negative 22 degrees Celsius. This was also the fuel temperature at which the rollback occurred on November 862 Delta Alpha, the Delta flight. They found that the flight crew became aware of a possible problem with the thrust 48 seconds before touchdown. That means they had 48 seconds to figure out the whole situation. That's not enough time for human factor to actually have a solution. So it's a good thing they had a solution to actually fix the airplane rather than the procedure. They found that the co-pilot, or the first officer, intended to disconnect the autopilot at 600 feet, but became distracted by the engine rollback. So the autopilot remained engaged, like we said. Exactly, as Miranda said, actually. Yes. Yes. You're getting too good at this. I have to hire somebody else. My, my, yeah, my productive <laughs> reasoning skills are too good. <laughs> yeah. They found that 34 seconds before touchdown, the flight crew became concerned about the reduction in airspeed below the target approach speed and attempted manually to increase engine thrust to compensate. There was no response from the engines. They found that at 240 feet above ground level, the commander or the captain retracted the flaps from flap 30 to flap 25, which increased the distance to touchdown by about 50 meters. If left at flap 30, the touchdown would still have been within the airfield boundary, but they likely would have struck the antennas. So it could have been a lot worse had he not retracted the flaps. So that was kind of brilliant. They found that at 200 feet above ground level, the stick shaker activated, and as a touchdown short of the runway was inevitable, the captain transmitted a mayday call three seconds before touchdown. So literally, I mean, they were just about to touch down when he called mayday. Yeah. Kind of crazy. I mean, all this happened so fast. It's hard to fathom. 
They found that there was insufficient time for the flight crew to brief the cabin crew or issue a brace, brace command. Needless to say, there just wasn't time. Right. They found that the evacuation alarm was perceived by the cabin crew as sounding faint in the cabin. I brought this one up because I thought it was interesting. So they, they heard the alarm to evacuate, but they said it was really quiet. So there's a whole bunch of findings on this, actually, and I, I uh, chose to kind of skip over that, but they found basically that it met all the standards, but one of the speakers wasn't working with the alarm. Oh. Basically. It still met standards for the, the alarm. So, Even so, the cabin crew members are the ones that are really in charge of evacuation. Well, and ultimately, they found that the commander initially announced his evacuation call over the VHF radio, but the ATC informed him of this. The call was repeated over the cabin PA system. So once the, cap- once the captain made a call, that was enough to, say, evacuate anyways. Right. They found that the passenger in seat 30K, 30K, kilo, Suffered a broken leg as items from the right main landing gear penetrated the fuselage during the ground slide. Yeah, ouch. Wait, I thought the right landing gear wasn't the one that punctured. I thought that's the one that separated. Good question. Could have been the right one. Okay. Anyways. One of the landing gear broke someone's leg. Yep. They found that 34 passengers and 12 cabin crews suffered minor injuries, mainly to the back and neck. So, whiplash. Whiplash. Yeah, they know that the airplane came to a very sudden stop once it hit the pavement. Well, and you, if you go forward and back with enough force, yeah. you're going to hurt your neck, you're going to hurt your back. It's just, right. And it surprises me that not more people got hurt from right. it. So. They found that some passengers attempted to retrieve personal items during the evacuation. Uh, uh, I, left that one, I left that one in there just so you guys would do that. Uh, I didn't even leave know that. Your- on the aircraft they did say there was one guy they interviewed in the mayday episode who was like i left i just stuff. left all my stuff and got off and i was like good do that please <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do yep again stuff is replaceable you are not tough yep okay so the next one's interesting we didn't really delve into this too much but this is exactly why they knew there was fuel on the airplane and that is, they found that the spar valves remained open following the accident, despite the operations of the fire switches and the engine run cutoff switches to cut off. This allowed 6,750 kilograms of fuel to leak out of the engines until the valves were manually closed. Oh, yeah, I didn't mention that part. Yeah, so we didn't really talk about it, but that's the whole reason they smelt fuel. It actually wasn't necessarily that the fuel was leaking out of the wings. It's that they were, it was actually leaking out of the engines because the fuel valves didn't close. So the, it was still feeding fuel through to the engines manually, and then they had to manually close the valves separately. They found that the spar valves remained open due to the wiring damage caused by the separation of the main landing gears, which also caused the left spar valve circuit breaker to trip. Ultimately, not a big deal, because thankfully it didn't light on fire. But No fire! No fire! They found that the glass fragments from the indirect sealing fluorescent tubes were found on the cabin floor. So these are actually the lights that usually point upward in the cabin, so along the ceiling. The impact caused them to probably buckle and Break. shatter. Yeah. And so there was glass scattered all over the cabin floor. Which is which, why you should have your shoes on yes. when you're evacuating. Yep. And don't wear high heels. So Whenever I see someone in high heels at the airport, I'm like, you're going to die first. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're going to break an ankle. It is worth pointing out that when you are looking at your safety card, it does say that if you are wearing high heels to remove them during evacuation. Yes. The alternative is to just not wear them and wear more suitable footwear. Yes. And change later. So I highly recommend don't wear high heels, but also... That's why they brought this up, more importantly, is that they want to make sure they don't shatter when this happens and cause glass to be over the floor. Because in the safety card, when it tells you to take off your high heels, if somebody had and they were walking around, they could have been ha- they could have had feet full of freaking glass. Yeah. That's awful. They found that nine of the 32 business economy video monitors detached from the seat backs in the impact due to wear of the support detent and spring. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah, nothing like traveling in business class for the luxury and then getting hit in the face with a... <laughs> with a screen. With a screen. <laughs> Pop! Yeah. They found that the left main landing gear attachments separated as designed. So, 
this has me all confused now because it's saying that the left one detached, even though in the story it says the right one is what fell off. Don't you love when they contradict themselves? So it could still be that the right one Puncture. fell off after puncturing, but the left one separated correctly just stayed with the airplane. One of the landing gear came off and the other didn't. The one that... One of them broke someone's leg. We don't know what's happening here anymore. <laughs> Thank you for attending this week's podcast. We're a mess. Left main landing gear collapsed. Right main landing gear separated. Yeah, so that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. The right one's the one that detached. Here. Yeah, which I'm, is what I said in the story. I'm going to show Miranda pictures. Sure. I like pictures. There's the left that's main the left. landing gear. And there's the right one. Oh, which Jesus. lost an entire axle. Oh, that's nice. Because there's supposed to be three. There's the damage to the right fuselage aft of the main landing gear bay. Where it went up into the Cock- or in the, the cabin, cabin. Passenger cabin Ouch. floor. There's the missing axle. <laughs> it went through it, the cabin. After it punctured. So the axle of the right main landing gear is probably what broke that individual's leg. Yes, Because there's like a clean little hole in like... 100% that's what happened. Well, and then it obviously buried itself in the ground because it has a pile on of dirt in the end <laughs> yes there is like a perfect circle in the fuselage right at row 30 yep so there you go we figured it out moving on okay we found that the manufacturing debris found in the fuel tanks was not a factor in the accident so again all it the crap that was left yeah. in the freaking fuel tanks which just don't do that yeah please don't <laughs> i mean it didn't have an effect on this crash but it could have had an effect on another one yeah yeah, could you just not leave stuff in the fuel tank? Please. This has been our public service announcement. Yeah. They found that the fuel sampled from Golf Dash Yankee Mike Mike Mike. Mike Mike Mike. <laughs> Mike Mike Mike. Contained 35 to 40 parts per million of water, which was similar to that found on other aircraft that had flown similar routes. So again... It's normal. This was normal. The water was normal. It's just how it froze that Calm was abnormal. down. Yeah. It was just how it froze that it was abnormal. They found that the center tank water detection messages recorded during taxi in Beijing were most likely nuisance messages, so they did detect water in the fuel. Probably incorrectly. Probably above normal, but it was, yeah, they said it was more of a nuisance message. Even yeah. they said in the report, it was like, eh, it was a nuisance message. That's why I didn't say it. They found that ice can form within the fuel system feed pipes with normal concentrations of dissolved and entrained water present in aviation turbine fuel. They found that ice can form on the inside of fuel pipes when warm fuel at a temperature of plus 5 degrees Celsius flows through cold pipes. They found that there is a, quote, sticky range, end quote, between negative 5 degrees C and negative 20 degrees C when ice crystals in aviation fuel are most likely to adhere to their surroundings. See, I didn't just say it. Nope. I I, I meant it. They said sticky. Sticky. They really do. And that's the next one, too. They They found that the ice is most sticky... At negative 12 degrees Celsius. This is our command of the English language. Yes. Sticky. Sticky. To describe something that is not at all viscous and sticky. No, it's just it being able to actually adhere to to itself and crystallize. They found that ice released from within the fuel pipes could form a restriction at the face of the FOHE. Fuel oil heat exchanger. Right. They found that reducing the fuel flow to idle always cleared any ice restriction on the face of the FOHE and therefore restored full fuel flow capability. So part of that is it changes the characteristics of the heat exchanger so that it is able to get hot enough to melt whatever's on the face. Right. And arguably, if they had had the altitude and enough time... And the wherewithal to know that that's what you should do. Right. Even then, the engines would have rolled back on their own, and then they probably would have had enough time to actually clear the ice. But had they been at a higher altitude, they were too low at this point. Unfortunately, it just happened too close to the ground. It was a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. They found that there are no published guidelines on environmental conditions or fuel rig size required to accomplish tests on the susceptibility of a fuel system to ice. So basically just saying... They're, they didn't have the means to certify the engine to not do this. Right. And this is a hard thing to figure out anyways, obviously. One, their first rig is the one where they weren't able to get the consistent results, and so they had to 
build a separate testing system. And I don't know if they had to build a separate facility for it too. They spent millions of dollars trying to figure this out. Right. And part of it was building a whole new environmental rig where they were able to more accurately simulate environmental factors like temperature. Yep. And I'm sure they do this a lot more regularly now. So that leads into the next one. They found that current certification requirements do not address the scenario of ice accumulation and release within fuel systems. So this one more specifically hits on, it's not a big deal that that ice necessarily forms because the heat exchanger usually just clears that as it flows. But they're saying, what if it accumulates and blocks and yeah. how to release it? They didn't have any way to certify, okay, the system is blocked, hand and how does it get cleared? There was no certification requirement for that, specifically. Okay, four more. Four more! They found that for the left engine, the investigation concluded that the restriction most likely occurred at its FOHE. However, due to limitations in available recorded data, it was not possible totally to eliminate the possibility of a restriction elsewhere in the fuel system. Although the testing and data mining activity carried out for this investigation suggested that this was very likely. Now, remember what we were talking about with that whole 45-second buffer? This is a little bit yeah. to do with that. And also just the fact that all the data they had to go on, they had a lot more related to the right engine since it rolled back first. And that told them a lot. <laughs> but the left engine rolled back later, and it didn't tell them much, so they can only assume what happened to the right engine is what happened to the left engine, but they don't have a way to prove that. They found that for the left engine, the likelihood of a separate restriction mechanism occurring within seven seconds of that for the right engine is very low. So in other words, if something else did happen to the left engine, it's completely separate. That would be like a one in bajillion chance. Yeah. It, the most likely scenario is that the same thing happened to both engines. Yes, the identical thing. And it makes sense because this is that one scenario that causes that in this one type of fuel, of fuel oil heat exchanger. And the system is not separated environmentally no. from left to right. So it's logical to say that what happens to one side, environmentally speaking, happens to the other. Right. And it did. Seven seconds apart. They found that in response to the AAIB safety recommendation 2008-047, Boeing introduced operational changes to mitigate the risk from fuel icing in the Boeing 777 powered by Trent 800 engines. So they already addressed this before the report was released. Yep. They also found that in response to the findings of this investigation, Rolls-Royce developed a modified version of the FOHE, and this was approved and mandated by the EASA, and I assume probably the FAA in the long term. Yep. So, basically, this all was resolved in the long term, thanks to the fact that they were able to modify the part and make this work. To get rid of that 4mm protrusion. Yep. That's it for the findings. That wasn't 115 of them, or we would still be here for the next, like, hour. However, I am still going to read the full causal factors page. Which is quite large. Whilst... On approach to London Heathrow from Beijing, China, at 720 feet above the ground level, the right engine of Golf Yankee Mike 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 ceased responding to autothrottle commands for increased power, and instead the power reduced to 1.03 engine power ratio, or EPR. Seven seconds later, the left engine power reduced to 1.02 EPR. This reduction led to a loss of airspeed and the aircraft touching down some 330 meters short of the paved surface of runway 27 left at London Heathrow. The investigation identified that the reduction in thrust was due to restricted fuel flow to both engines. It was determined that this restriction occurred on the right engine at its FOHE. For the left engine, the investigation concluded that the restriction most likely occurred at its FOHE. However, due to limitations in available recorded data, it was not possible totally to eliminate the possibility of a restriction elsewhere in the fuel system, although the testing and data mining activity carried out for this investigation suggested that this was highly unlikely. Further, the likelihood of a separate restriction mechanism occurring within seven seconds of that for the right engine was determined to be very low. The investigation identified the following probable causal factors that led to the fuel flow restrictions. 1. Accreted ice from within the fuel system released, causing a restriction to the engine fuel flow at the face of the FOHE on both engines. 
ice had formed within the fuel system from water that occurred naturally in the fuel, whilst the aircraft operated with low fuel flows for over a long period, and the localized fuel temperature was in an area described as the sticky range. The FOHE, although compliant with the applicable certification requirements, was shown to be susceptible to restriction when presented with soft ice in a high concentration, with a fuel temperature that is below negative 10 degrees centigrade and a fuel flow above flight idle. Certification requirements with which the aircraft and engine fuel systems had to comply did not take account of this phenomenon as the risk was unrecognized at the time. (sighs) (laughs) That's a mouthful. Them Brits. All of that. They're, they're loquacious. Yes. The Brits are very loquacious. We're going to go on to the uh, safety recommendations. So there's only 18 of these. They are kind of long-winded. So I will... Summarize, please. Uh, try. <laughs> so they recommended that Boeing should notify all Boeing 777 operators of the necessity to operate fuel control switches to cut off prior to operating the fire handle. This actually happened on this flight where... Once they had hit the ground and come to a stop, they were going through the checklist to shut everything down and begin the evacuation. And they had pulled the first officer, I believe. Well, I don't know. The first officer and the captain each did a separate thing. One did the cutoff and the other one did the fire handles. So you're supposed to operate the cutoff, the fuel cutoff first so that the engines, if are running at all, should stop and fuel stops. And then operate the fire handle, and they didn't do this. They did the opposite. So that was just one thing. They recommended is recommended that the FAA and the EASA, in conjunction with Boeing and Rolls-Royce, introduce interim measures for the Boeing 777-Trent 800 engines to reduce the risk of ice formed from water and aviation turbine fuel, causing a restriction in the fuel feed system. They obviously just changed the part altogether. So that was important. They recommended to the FAA and the EASA that they should take immediate action to consider the implications of findings of the investigation on other certificated airframe and engine combinations. So just making sure that the same thing doesn't happen on any other kind of airplane, not just the 777, any other kind of engine, too. It is recommended that the FAA and the EASA review the current certification requirements to ensure that aircraft and engine fuel systems are tolerant to the potential buildup and sudden release of ice in the fuel feed systems. So making sure that that's actually tested and that there's a certification for it. That if it does build up, that there's also a way to get rid of it, clear that blockage. Again, basically fixed by the part. It is recommended that Boeing and Rolls-Royce jointly review the aircraft and engine fuel system designed for the Boeing 777 powered by Rolls-Royce Trent 800 engines to develop changes which prevent ice from causing a restriction to the fuel flow at the fuel oil heat exchanger. Again, that was done. It is recommended that the FAA and the EASA consider mandating design changes that are introduced as a result of the Recommendation 2009-028, developed to prevent ice from causing a restriction to the fuel flow at the fuel oil heat exchanger on Boeing 777 aircraft. They did. They cut that four millimeters out. That's no longer a factor. Ta-da! 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 It's recommended that the FAA and the EASA conduct a study into feasibility of expanding the use of anti-ice additives in aviation turbine fuel on civil aircraft. So, this already does exist in GA, and it does somewhat exist in airlines, but they're talking about making it a lot more prevalent. So, anti-ice additives in the fuel. It's recommended that the FAA and the EASA jointly conduct research into ice formation in aviation turbine fuels. How specifically that works, so just doing literally more scientific research into this. It's recommended the FAA and the ESA jointly conduct research into ice accumulation and subsequent release mechanisms within aircraft and engine fuel systems. How to make that more feasible. It's recommended the EASA to introduce a requirement to record on a DFDR, so a digital, digital flight data recorder. Digital flight data recorder. The operational position of each engine fuel metering device where practicable. So, adding that as a parameter to yes, the flight data recorder. Exactly. It's recommended that the FAA introduce a requirement to record the same thing. It is recommended that Boeing minimize the amount of buffering of data prior to its being recorded on a QAR. That 45 seconds I was talking about? Yeah. That seems a little long. So they wanted Boeing to redevelop that so that the buff- that 45 second buffer doesn't exist because obviously in an accident, those last 45 seconds, like this one, Really key. It is recommended that Boeing apply the modified 
design of the Boeing 777-200LR main landing gear drag brace, or an equivalent measure, to prevent fuel tank rupture on future Boeing 777 models and continuing production of existing models of the type. So, basically, there's a newer system on the newer 777 that prevents this from puncturing and is a lot safer, and they want it on all the 777s. Is recommended that the FAA amend their requirements for landing gear emergency loading conditions to include combinations of side loads so that they don't rip away to the sides. Is recommended that the FAA, in conjunction with the EASA, review the requirements for landing gear failures to include the effects of landing on different types of surfaces. Kind of a no-duh, if you ask me. You're going to have an accident. It could be anywhere. Yes, it could be anywhere. It is recommended that the FAA require that Boeing modify the design for the Boeing 777 of the indirect ceiling light assemblies, their associated attachments, and their immediate surroundings to ensure that the fluorescent tubes, or their fragments, will be retained in a survivable impact. So even if they're going to shatter, keep them inside (laughs) their little compartment so that the glass doesn't end up all over the floor and the passengers. It is recommended that the FAA and the EASA review the qualification testing requirements applied by manufacturers to cabin fittings to allow for dynamic flexing of fuselage and cabin structure. So if the cabin was to flex at all in an accident like this one, monitors don't fly off their their mounts to injure people. Into their faces. Yes. It's a little unfortunate. It is recommended that the EASA mandate MSB 4400-25MB059 revision 3 to require the inspection and replacement of the video monitor fittings on the Recaro seat model 4400. So changing out those monitors specifically. That's it. That was all of their recommendations. And all of them are pretty direct. Obviously mostly about the part and making sure that this doesn't happen again. And then researching more how fuels how they can prevent ice in fueling systems and fuel flow systems and how they can prevent these things from happening on any other kind of airplane and reviewing that. Yeah. That's the important stuff. And that's pretty much it. It's all that boils down to everybody survived and here's how to prevent this in the future. Yeah. And overall, the triple seven is still a very, very sturdy airplane. So that's the key takeaway here is that the triple seven really did a, Good job, ultimately. As did the crew, by the way. The crew did a fantastic job. So, that was British Airways Flight 38. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Make sure to check out the Patreon, if you are so inclined. You can look on our website, or you can go to patreon.com and just check our name. We pull right up. Take a look at the merch tab on our website, and see all the cool stuff on there. There's a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. That we bought ourselves. Yeah, I'm going to be buying more. Yeah. And make sure to send us your stories, please and thank you. Please. We very much appreciate it, and we do like hearing from you guys and reading your stories. So It is fun. Have a great and wonderful and healthy week, and we will catch all you guys next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.